So it's seven metres out. Australia needs to try to win the game. Cobain takes the line out. Australia trying to drive ahead. Gregan again. And Larkham. Kefu. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Running Rugby Podcast and we're on episode 68 and that's right, one week left of the Rugby World Cup. It's me, Archie, joined with Toby and Leo, got the whole trio in this week and we've just been seeing these semi-finals and probably two more different games than I've seen in a long time between teams in the top five. We had the out-and-out attack for 80 minutes between England and New Zealand with that upset going on. England getting through versus the box-kicking duel for 80 minutes with minimal points um, coming easily for either Wales or South Africa last night, but Razia Rasmus and his men get home and make it through to the final. First thoughts, boys. England, obviously, the big upset here, taking down the world number ones. New Zealand going out, missing out on the three-peat of World Cups. What are your thoughts? Yeah, actually, huge result here. I mean, New Zealand... We didn't think they were this vulnerable, I guess. England, we knew they were a threat, but look, they seemed to shut down New Zealand and dominate this game, and New Zealand just didn't have any answers. I think they tried to go wide too early, didn't punch through the middle enough, and they made the same sort of mistakes that the Wallabies do sometimes, just trying to play around a team rather than earn the right to go forward through the middle. So I was not wholly surprised by this result, but... I guess in the manner that which had happened, England just seemed their defence was just unflappable, and yeah, I was I was pretty impressed by them. I was super surprised by this. I didn't think New Zealand really had um, any problems. I thought they'd be breezing through this English team, but you're right; they definitely did what taken with a better team. Do you think the putting Scott Barrett at six made a difference in this? I don't think that was a huge difference. I, I, exactly what Toby said. They didn't earn the right to go forward by using their their forwards rolling game up the middle, and and that's not just we you know not having the right guy at six or not having the right skill set at six. They they really didn't take that um, tactic and go with it until mid second half, and that's when they started looking like they were controlling the ball and getting some advantage line gains. They never really did that in the first half. I think it just. Uh, It was the try and go around, try and beat guys one-on-one, and the English defence were up to the task. Yeah, and Barrett, I think, look, maybe they were thinking it would be more of a forward tussle, um, you know, pretty hard-fought battle up front, and maybe Barrett with his size would have helped a fair bit, and also in the line-out, I think, which didn't come to actually to pass at all. Um, England were able to disrupt New Zealand's line-out, so... I don't think you, like Leo says, you can't blame this this loss on one selection. I think Sam Kane, um, that combination with Artie Severe and Kieran Reid had been working. Um, so it was interesting that he would do that at the last minute. Um, it more reminds me of something Czech would do. There were multiple things that didn't go right for the All Blacks, and they really haven't been tested like that probably since they lost to us over in Perth. Yeah, Sam Kane really didn't have a, a massive impact even when he came on in the second half against some tiring opposition. Uh, Curry and Underhill were really dominant through this game. They they con- controlled the English rucks. They were nuisances to the New Zealanders. And the addition at fly half of George Ford 
um, the tactical kicking game was the English tactical kicking game was brilliant and well and truly outdid the New Zealanders who've been the masters of that for a long time. Well, they started fast and started hard. I think this is the fastest try scored against New Zealand ever in World Cup history coming within the first two minutes with some breaknet speed going side to side and then Manu Tuolangi coming in and doing a pick and drive late to get over the line. They really just didn't seem like they were playing with any fear and I guess I probably started showing even at the start of the game with the Haka and them forming the sort of inverse V. We saw the flying V come back uh, to that rugby field and even with the refs trying to hold them back over the halfway line, the English guys just wanted to advance, wanted to put their mark and show that they weren't going to take any intimidation from the Haka. I don't know what the significance of that inverted V was. Do you guys have any insight into that? I, I understand it's trying to change it up and maybe throw the All Blacks off a bit. It it didn't have an obvious significance to me. And all I, all I picked out was exactly what you said, Arch, that the players were trying to advance a little bit over halfway and needing to be shepherded back in their half. I think it's just sometimes maybe teams do something a bit different, whether they just link arms and walk forward or just show, just give a real, I guess, indication that they're not intimidated. And I'm not sure that it probably didn't have any impact at all on the All Blacks and, and their, um, you know, their pre-game ritual. I think they were pretty fired up as well. It looked like TJ was going nuts in that Harker and Sonny Bill, a few other guys were really up for this game. So I don't know. It's, it's a good indication, I think. I don't think the team should be stopped to do certain things like this. I think it makes it really interesting. And you could see with Farrell, he was giving them a smirk and... Um, look, yeah, I just think England weren't intimidated at all by the All Blacks. Yeah, I think England seemed to stand out everywhere in this game. Definitely not intimidated at all. The wingers, yeah, both both of them, both Johnny May and Anthony Watson down both sides were causing havoc. Um, we just didn't see the New Zealand backline really getting any go forward. And was that one of the worst games you've seen Bowden Barrett play? I think it was it was pretty lackluster. He didn't manage to inject effectively. Um, he, he got the ball pretty often. He, he had involvement, but it just he never really gained anything. The, again, the English uh, defense one on one. They they weren't fooled by any of the switching mm. moves or the or the fast flanking. They just shifted and and that adjustment contained everything the All Blacks had. So um, he just he just really didn't add much from from fullback. Didn't didn't come out of the deep with. With well, much explosive it pace. seemed like he was trying to do it all himself. Every time he got the ball, he was looking to try and step, get wide, try and accelerate into a gap. And he wasn't ever getting uh, the ball like sort of second or third phase with a bit of go forward. It was really at a standstill with the English defensive line sort of advancing on him as well. So I think you're right. I think they just didn't use their forward runners enough. We didn't see those those classic sort of all-black forwards coming in at an angle with those short balls off the ruck. They were always going out the back second man to Richie Moongo, Bowden Barrett. And one thing I'd add to that as well, um, glossed over it with, with the Sam Kane versus Scott Barrett, the the um, dearth of leadership by not having Sam Kane in there. Like, he's a senior guy. He's captain of his super rugby team. Um, he's one of those players who's been in the side a long time and having the extra leadership in and around the group and, and that familiarity as a group. Um, it's kind of saying that maybe the All Blacks finally found the threshold where adding brilliant players actually actually hurt them as a unit. 
they they introduced one too many guys who they thought were specialised in an area, but um, with all the mixing this year of Bowden Barrett and Moanga and back row combinations, did they erode a bit of their experience and their cohesion and then not really be able to react as a team when things weren't going their way? Yeah, I think there was definitely a lack of cohesion and whether you can drill back to even that idea that maybe when they're not when it is a bit of a tougher game having that Bowden Moanga sort of combo maybe isn't working as well. It's just not quite as slick as having a Ben Smith at the back, having Damien McKenzie potentially would have been their sort of first choice fifteen and whether that that just showed a little bit in these sort of tougher games. I think I think Richie was just as much at fault and particularly the first half as Bowden was the the structures were just not there for the back line. I think you clearly saw it when they came back at half time. The first time they shifted the ball out of the ruck, they looked like that actually stuck to their structures more and they had a, a full back line going. Because I just think it was yeah. The way they play generally, they, they do have good structures even though they sometimes, you know, you're finding hookers out on the wing, things like that. Cody Taylor Taylor roaming wide. I just think they went they maybe were trying to do too much and and prep and pushing the pass too much, um, going wide too early. And I just think that yeah, like I said before, they weren't earning the right to go forward, and that really hurt them in the first half, particularly. Anton Leonard Brown, though, what a defender! He was tackling his brains out all game, and definitely saved a few English line breaks. He couldn't stop all of them, but yeah, that guy really stood up for me. Equally, get Jack Woodhue as well. I think was everywhere in the first half. Um, one of the few guys that was doing a lot of good stuff. But, yeah, I just think possibly in the forwards, is that's where the battle was won. And then it allowed, um, I guess, what well, didn't allow sometimes the, the All Blacks back line to really open up and fire because they weren't dominating up front. Mm. Let's move on from that game and talk about the South Africa-Wales game because, as I said, it was very different. Two teams that, whether it was due to the conditions, bit of humid, bit of swirling winds, but... They decided early that they were going to play this game all about trying to pin people back in their own territory, put up the high kicks and try and make people make mistakes and waiting for each other to make mistakes. But it just sort of ended up being quite a boring game for the majority of this, didn't it? Yeah, not a good game from my perspective at all, Arch. I, there was a plenty of interviews after the game with uh, spectators that were at the stadium and, and most people weren't impressed with that kicking duel. It did open up a little bit towards the middle of the second half there and teams were, were running it a bit more, stringing some phases together. Um, at one stage, yeah, the Springboks really had to had to punch through um, to get their, their points. And I don't know, it just it just turned into a strange game where it was very close in for, for the most part. But, yeah, there was too much kicking. And I think if, if the, the box do play like that against England, I think it's going to blow up in their face. Yeah, I didn't like those tactics at all. The fact that both teams were playing the same way, no one really wanted to carry the ball and, and play phases a whole lot. Um, and I think that that's South Africa's game, like the, the odd tactical kick um, in, in the space, particularly someone like Pollard or LaRue hunting a bit of territory when the Welsh are out of position, when you draw up the winger by, by flashing out wide a bit. Um, there was one particular kick where de Klerk was a great kick and he rolled it down the line just after the Welsh had shifted in, into a different arrangement in defence and there was space and he took advantage of it. I think they could have done more of that by rolling through their forwards and possessing the ball to try and tire out the Welsh. Um, and this game as well, I mean, we 
we hate to talk about it, but the refereeing decisions in this, there are a few penalties that were very poorly uh, awarded and multiple infringements that, that were allowed to play on. I, I didn't understand. I think the the taking the uh, whistle out of the mouth that they've been doing in the quarters and semis went too far in this one. Speculated this, though, didn't we? Like, there were lots of cards in the pool stages, and they're... Apart from that big elbow from the the French lock, there hasn't been a whole lot going yeah. on with penalties cards. Yeah, and again, we've seen this in Super Rugby in the last couple of years. Like I've said, like they start too hot and then they really have to rein it in, and it becomes even more inconsistent. So, um, yeah, teams are able to to really push things, you know, push the offside line a lot, um, infringe in rucks, and then kind of let go of the ball and be like, okay, I haven't done anything. Um, and really play to the whistle. And I think teams that are willing to push that more are, su- are successful overall. And I think the the amount of kicking versus what should have been penalised with some of the players making chase and not really contesting the ball and you know colliding with players in the air, um, there are a few that were a bit grey and you sort of accept that they'll be let go some of the time. But there were some obvious ones which I felt should have been called and I think that really would have um, put, put a dampener on that on that uh, tactic earlier on with players not just being allowed to kind of throw their bodies in without contesting the ball properly that they would have had to go away from that tactic which might have improved the game and honestly in an, in another version in another reality the players were you know there was a bit of an unsafe edge to some of that and they should always be trying to get that out of the game early before it goes too far so looking at the game as a whole do you think South Africa deserved to win it I yeah do. I think that yeah, I do. But barely. Well. Neither team gets a high score. Yeah, I'd, I'm kind of glad that they are in the final because I think if they play the right way, they're the one team that can test England. I think if Wales got there, particularly with a few of the injuries that they picked up here, um, they may have really struggled. So South Africa, look, they look mostly healthy. I think they do have the players to do this. They've got the forwards particularly to, to battle those that some of those big boys in England has. Um, and they've got some real talent in the back line if they play the right way. Fast, you know, when he does the right thing, kicks, um, picks his time to kick. He's really, really effective. And Andre Pollard, you see when he starts actually taking the ball oh, to the line and running electric. it, he's dangerous. So I hope that they kind of maybe, you know, adapt their thinking in terms of territory game and and play a bit more possession there because they really do have the electric wingers and some of the playmakers there to, to cut England up. The key word, I think, for South Africa and why they won this game was depth on the bench as well. I think like their replacements coming on, the likes of Kitsoff and Marks in the front row, really held that strum, scrum strong. Snyman um, is always a threat in open field play just with his offload game. And Francois Lowe, you saw him get that pivotal turnover at the end of the game. And people have been saying that it's sort of the difference between their starting back row um, they don't have an out-and-out sort of pilferer. And maybe maybe someone like Lowe does need to be on the field or someone like Marks does need on, to be on the field to try and counteract the likes of Curry or Underhill, the Undertaker, as people are calling him now. Hmm. Well, Mbanombi does a little bit of pilfering, but you're right, they don't have a really strong presence there at the ruck going for turnovers. Um, but they sort of played it, played it all right when they brought the, the bench on that's that's where they really needed to hold the ball, play the phases, and and keep the Welsh um, in defence. So that can work too. I think they're 
their strong forwards game, their their big running backs. If they start taking on the line, England will probably play George Ford uh, at ten. You start mm-hmm. running the bigger boys through that channel and and force them to put him into hiding, forcing them to change their structure or or bring an extra forward in to support him off his shoulder. You'll start creating opportunities in other areas, and they can match England for pace. Um, maybe maybe only their wingers are probably giving ground to the English wingers. I think that's probably the biggest point of difference in these two sides. They'd love to get Cheslin Colby back for the final, wouldn't they? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I'm not sure what other depth they have. Uh, aside from a Pimpy, Colby, and Nkosi, who else would they have? It's getting a bit yeah, limited I can't after think that. Out and out wingers. Jesse Creel uh, could play wing for them. That's someone yeah. that they could bring in. He's played wing yeah. a few times. Otherwise, yeah. The other question I think I mean, Willie Larue hasn't sorry. played, hasn't really stood out in fullback for a couple of games now. He's a guy that can be absolutely pivotal to creating that second line of attack, but he's just looked a bit off form, a bit off his game. He's been dropping a lot of ball. But they haven't been playing as many phases for him to inject either. Like that that kicking game, they were playing two, three, four phases and and getting rid of it rather than again forwards up the middle push one side, then try and stretch around, back around. And that's where he gets the looping run and puts in kicks and, and support players pick up the ball. Um, I just don't think this, this game plan, as it played out, really gave him that many opportunities. And then just the number of kicks. Eventually, someone's going to drop uh, a ball. And you saw De Klerk, you saw Willie LaRue. They, they fumbled a few and, and put themselves under a bit of pressure. I really do think that having LaRue there, he's a big-time player and he, he takes a bit of maybe the... The pressure off Andre Pollard at 10 because he can slot in as a playmaker and I think the other person you could put there would be Fran State and I'm just not sure that he's um, probably has the match fitness mm. or in the last few years really the form to justify that selection so LaRue for me I'd go with him still I know I get I take your point I think in the finals particularly he's been a bit shaky but he's the type of guy that can win you a game and I think against England he will step up to the mark um I think otherwise you're probably the back three. If you don't have Colby there, for example, if you change up Willie Leroux at the back, that back three I think would be a massive weakness against a really solid yeah, back true. three for England. So I'd probably persist with it. Um, you'd hope that he's not dropping balls early and otherwise maybe you do replace him at halftime um, and give Franz Stein the, the super boot, um, you know, a bit of a go there. But, um, yeah, it's going to be a fascinating game, I think, because... South Africa have a lot of potential, and we've said it all year. They've got the squad. They've got the depth there. Um, when they play the right way, we see the way they can play in contrast in Super Rugby. Some teams play a more territory game. Other teams, like the Lions, play with the ball more. So I think they've just got to find that balance, and, and they will open up and score points. And hopefully, like Ireland peaked a year early, hopefully the, the South Africans haven't peaked a couple of months early because they just looked so dominant in the Rugby Championship uh, obviously drawing with New Zealand in New Zealand and and then they had to really uh, get amongst it in that pool game against the Kiwis and, and couldn't quite pull it off. They haven't quite looked as dominant as earlier in the year since then. Uh, so, yeah, they'll, they'll need to find that top form that they had mid, mid-season. Yeah, and it's, it's kind of fitting that the two teams that are making it through to the final, obviously England, South Africa, both the teams that are maintaining and keeping their current coaches all the rest of the teams losing 
their coaches as well after this year. So Razia Erasmus and Eddie Jones, for now at least, will be sticking around. Um, so one will have a successful World Cup champion team to take into 2020. But Saturday night, World Cup final, what are the key matchups here? Who do you think are the biggest sort of matchups between these two teams that are really going to clear a path for a victory? I think Farrell at 12 and Daliende is going to be a big matchup and whether Farrell can put that shoulder charge away and, and not get himself into trouble. Daliende in this, this game, when they were running the ball, was really direct and effective in his carries. Yeah. Um, so for that, that would be one big one for me. Um, and another one, I think, would be the, the two lock pairings. I think that's going to be huge. Um, South Africa will be pretty fired up. You saw how intense Edzabeth was on the bench there. He doesn't like to be taken off. Mm. Um, Snyman could easily start over, um, what's his name? Lou Diaga. Lou Diaga, that's right. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think that, that lock pairing matchup would be, will be a big one as well. Yeah, I think, again, the back rows. New Zealand failed to, to win the battle of the back rows last week. Um, the South Africans, if they don't make any changes, are bringing another powerful group of three players. Um, but these, these three have been playing together pretty much all season, pretty consistently where, where they've had the big matches. So, um, look, I think it's a really talented back row. If they can find a way to, to negate the, the pilfers out of the English side and, and try and get some fast ball, it's something they didn't get against the Welsh. There wasn't really much fast ball at all. Uh, between between the back rowers, I think that's really critical. And then that unlocks the opportunity for some fast play. And it'll be the tactical kicking game again from George Ford and from Andre Pollard. Uh, England were just masters of it. They, they picked the right times. They didn't overdo it, but they really pinned the All Blacks back and just, just kept the pressure on. It wasn't heavy pressure all the time, but it was just sustained, sustained pressure that really made the All Blacks try and come up with new ideas and England had an answer for everything. So uh, South Africa can try the same thing. They've got some big boots in that group uh, and a couple of different players who can do the kicking. So hopefully they can catch the English out of position and pin them back and get that rolling ball going. Mm. The only really injury um, of note for starting teams in both these uh, is probably Johnny May did pull up early with a questionable hamstring injury. He didn't look like he was running at full pace. So that may be one force change for the English. Uh, that probably makes a bit of a difference. I don't know whether they bring in someone like Jack Knoll. They put Henry Slade in off the bench, but he's not a classical winger there. Does, does that hurt a little bit of the flow of that English back line? I think it will hurt them a little bit. I mean, Jack Knoll's a, a very good player, as well, but he hasn't been in the lineup for a, a couple of games at least. Um, and I can't see either yeah, Joseph or... Slade actually starting there on the wing. I think they will bring in someone that's a bit more specialist. I just think that the cohesion that backline has, whether Ford plays at 10 or not, I think they, their cohesion is, is so strong and their positional play. So Jack Knoll's a very ball-in-hand attacking winger um, and, and Johnny May's a similar, I guess, he, he's similar in that way, but he does probably have a bit of a kicking game. So, look... Probably not a huge step down, but I, I do think it may hurt them in terms of maybe their cohesion a little bit. He's definitely a potent attacker out of the back, like um, coming off the, the offload or chasing the kick, chasing the bomb through. Um, they probably they probably don't have someone quite the same quality and, and um, with the same vision, but 
I don't know that that gives South Africa an advantage. If anything, maybe it just levels the playing field on that side, um, mm-hmm. being that I think South Africa already have somewhat of a weakness. So um, it's really good that both sides are basically full strength. We know like, effectively if Johnny May's out and Colby's out, well, maybe that's parity. Um, the it would be nice to see everyone at full strength and, and playing for the championship that way there's no question marks it's the best of the best out on the field and we get a good contest alright then what's your predictions for the World Cup champion then I think I think I'm, I'm going to tip with my heart because I want South Africa to beat the English no surprises there if the two sides that played last weekend were playing I think England would comfortably have it uh, South Africa did not look like the team that I expect them to be. Uh, but it's a World Cup final. I'm sure both teams will lift to their absolute peak. Uh, I'm going to say South Africa by four. Um, yeah, this is a tough one. I think England are the form team coming in. Um, they're a real threat. I think if they play with the confidence they've showed against the Wallabies and All Blacks, it'll be very, very difficult to beat. But nonetheless, as we've said, the box are a tough matchup for them and I think it will be relatively close. I'm probably going to take England by three points, though. We're on both sides here. I, yeah, I don't know which way to lean. I think the only thing that makes me hesitant as well, tipping South Africa, and I know it's just superstition, but no team has ever won the Rugby World Cup having lost a game in the pool stages, which means South Africa would have to actually break history to win this. So just on the back of that and the way England were playing... I think I think I'm going to have to take England, but I think yeah, two two points, two to four points. I think it's it's going to be a really close one. And then the day before, we we have two teams that probably absolutely devastated to not be playing on Saturday: New Zealand and Wales. Um, how do they pick themselves back up to try and play this third v four um, game? How do they, how do you get the motivation to go back out there? To be honest, why do they even play this game? Like yeah, what, this, what yeah. what's the point? I don't, I don't understand. Like it's, there's not going to be much pride in playing for third. Like they might be able to get get some energy up while they're on the field, but preparing for this game when you know it effectively means nothing. You know that neither side has got anything against the other. They don't want to go out there and bash each other. There's no there's nothing to play for. I find it very odd that they that they do play this game. I I don't think it'll be as high intensity as every other game that's been a knockout. This is the first time really it's hit me like what are they doing with this? Like it really doesn't make much sense. And I know traditionally they do play it and the Wallabies what won it in 2011, was it? Yeah. We got third. Um, and I did enjoy seeing that. I think we beat Wales that year in 2011. Um, so it was something to take away. And I guess it impacts the world rankings and New Zealand will be keen to, to keep um, keep as many wins as they can. But you know, Kieran Reid's finishing up his career with the All Blacks. Alan Wynne Jones is finishing up with Wales. But you've got to think after the bowing out in the semis, they've gone and had a, a you know a bit of a piss up and um, probably enjoyed themselves. So they're not mm. going to be prepping that well. Um, it's whether they just you know pick second fifteens um, and and just go with that and see what happens. Um, throw the cards up and see where they land, but. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not a great. It's it's a good. It feels like a hollow games, game, I guess. But I mean, Warren Gatland players, came out and horrible, said horrible. how badly this Welsh team wants to beat the All Blacks. Like, there's it's been so long since the Welsh have recorded a win over a New Zealand team that 
for him it's just as important it's their opportunity boys. yeah so well that's that's really good out of a coach to find a reason because i i just can't think of the players being all that pumped up but if your coach comes out and goes right well you know what we we couldn't he's win he's a keyway yeah so yeah speaks for him and, in in multiple and, ways i guess yeah, he's, he's going, trying to charge them up, find a reason. You can play it the other way. You can say to the Kiwis, we haven't lost to the Welsh in X number of years. Um, you know, we've met, we, it's pride on the national jersey to maintain this. But knowing there's no real silverware at the end of the game, uh, I don't know. I, I, I just can't see them getting up as much energy for it. That They'll be absolutely gutted and exhausted after putting in the efforts they did the previous week. It's... It's you know they're going to get caught at a low point on all sides to to try and lift for this game. And to that point, I guess Wales has more to play for. I don't see that New Zealand has much to play for at all. Gatlin may think, look, if I can get a win here over New Zealand, make history for Wales, um, show that I'm the type of coach that can orchestrate a win against the All Blacks and put his case forward for that All Blacks coaching position maybe in a couple of years' time if it's up for grabs. So. We know he's going back to New Zealand to coach provincially, um, but I'm sure he'd love to kind of get one over his compatriots that have actually given him a pretty hard time over the years. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's it's one of those things before he goes home, he can really kind of stick it to them and show how good a, how good a coach he is. Yeah, obviously heading off to coach the Chiefs next year. Do you think Wales can do that? Or does it just all depend on selections at this stage? I'd take the ABs. I think they have just the depth. They could play their second string team almost, and I think across one to fifteen, almost have a stronger team than Wales. Yeah, I kind of think that New Zealand should be able to do this easily, but I also thought they'd be a much better match for England. So, um, assuming that they pick the same side, I think there's still vulnerability. I think England's given the roadmap to to show how to pressure the All Blacks and, and unsettle them. No reason why Wales can't ex- execute the same thing. It'll be interesting to see if they don't just go back to a Richie. Maybe Richie plays ten and and Crotty's in at twelve, and they and they you know get Ben Smith back in there. Um, perhaps they they change it up for this last match. Go back to saying it's a bit more um, traditional based on previous seasons. Yeah, it's just it's just a bit thoroughly unexciting, isn't it? Even talking about it, it's not really something that. You're excited for it's just that appetizer before the World Cup final comes Saturday, which is going to be massive. And kudos, I think, to just Japan as well. I don't think we've said it enough of how great that it's been this World Cup in Japan. The fans, obviously, from every country, but the Japanese fans are getting behind it in every single game. And it just seems like the atmosphere has been absolutely electric throughout, even with obviously the national disaster with the typhoons and things going on at the same time and there's been great sort of respect shown by all the teams as well in helping out moments of silence you saw even the canadian team stayed and helped clean up um some wreckage before they flew flew away from japan yeah Yeah, i think they've hosted really well they've obviously got a lot of um faithful rugby lovers supporting a multitude of sides um they're all getting in the spirit the stadiums are all packed out and I was thinking the other day, actually, this the biggest success here, the players should be really invested in this because the the success of the World Cup and rugby in Japan is going to result in future years for, in huge paydays for players if they haven't already achieved that. 
like the the Japanese nation and and all the fans are now really into the rugby. Obviously, the Japanese team has done a lot to to achieve that. The players who are getting contracts in Japan in coming years are going to be the beneficiaries of this. Yeah, it really is. You know, France has still got that ability to pay players probably more than they deserve, and now I think Japan's probably right there with them, and it means that they can probably stay slightly closer to home if they're coming from Australia or New Zealand and within the same time time zone. So a lot of New Zealand players are going there to enjoy their retirements or, you know, the back end of their careers. Um, you're seeing Samu Karevi go there. Hopefully he comes back soon. But, yeah, like you say, Leo, it's a, it's a huge, I think, benefit to those really top players that are, are picking up some good money. And, yeah, I think Japan's really showed that it has such a strong love for rugby. But there was one other competition that wrapped up back in Australia over the weekend, the NRC, which we haven't really touched on, um, but it's been going on quietly at home. And still a lot of the talent that missed out from this Wallaby squad has been on show there. And we had the final over in Perth. Obviously, the force have continued their sort of strong run, obviously having the Global Rapid Rugby together this year and then into NRC and absolutely smashing the Vikings in the grand final. Uh, I believe it was 47-3 to was at the final score. Um, absolutely bombing away. And thanks to Twiggy Forrest earning a fair bit of money for charity with that as well. Yeah, $100,000 donated per try scored which they um, they certainly made the most of that opportunity, which is great. That'll all go to a good cause. And uh, nice for the force to wrap up a season where they're trying to, you know, develop something new on the side, come into NRC, play well together. Big things ahead for the force next year and, and the global rapid rugby competition. And you can just see the cohesion they've really forged together as a team, even though they probably haven't played as many games as they would like. Um, they've barely lost a game over the last couple of years and, they are playing well. Some of those guys that finished up their careers in Super Rugby with the forces still playing for them, and they're, I guess, eagerly looking forward to this expanded Rapid Rugby competition. So we wish them well. Definitely, and it's even creating a few opportunities for some of those guys getting contracts back into Super Rugby with the likes of um, Andrew Deegan and things coming back over to the Rebels. So I'm sure we'll see a bit more of movement between those sort of two different competitions. There has been plenty of other news going on in Australia, obviously regarding a bit of change up with the coaches, Checkers' last comments to Raylene Castle and such. But we might leave that until next week uh, where we'll do our final wrap-up of the Rugby World Cup and 2019 for Australian rugby. Uh, And then we'll have a few months off before it all starts again. We've got to start looking forward to 2020. But before that, massive game this Saturday night. Tune in for the Rugby World Cup final going to be another absolutely classic i can feel it we'll keep you all updated with all the teams and any changes that come out on that on social media whether that's on facebook instagram at running rugby podcast or on twitter at running rugby pod and we'll be back with you next week make sure to download and subscribe to the podcast on apple Podcasts or spotify anywhere you listen to your podcast but from leo toby and myself keep on running run